wrestle with <laughs> principalities of an entire region of Persia, an entire region of Greece. And there's 70 of these guys. I remember when I, used to, I was reading through Ephesians 6, and Paul has this, in Ephesians 3, he has this really developed theology of powers and principalities. Or, our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against powers, principalities, rules in the heavenly places. Ephesians 3, that the gospel might be presented before powers and principalities. And I'm like, where is he getting this? Like, Paul's not making this up. Where in the Old Testament powers and principalities? And I was like, oh, gods. This is just, they, it's just, you know, in Hebrew, it's just gods. And so you have this idea when, when they worship gods, they're not just worshiping fake things, they're worshiping powers and principalities of those nations, the gods of those nations, um, that are not wood or stone, they're demonic principalities um, that they're worshiping, right? And, and this, is the, this is one of the controversies we get with Israel, that Israel is supposed to worship the God of Israel, the only true God, so that these other nations who worship their false gods would be turned, would be able to have a light to turn to see that the one true God is the God of Israel. But instead, Israel turns and follows the gods of the nations. And we're going to see, if we get to it, Deuteronomy, the Song of Moses, this is where this is drawn out. And, and this is so cr critical to our understanding because um, we as Gentiles, Paul gives a specific warning in Romans 11 for, specifically for us Gentiles. And it has to do with the Song of Moses. It has to do with history, 70 AD. Um, and, and hopefully we can get into a little bit of that. But... Um, I just wanted to give a little background. That this story, the Torah, is important. The storyline is real. It's not fake, kind of like people that is just kind of lessons of, of good and evil and kind of thing. Like these are real historical guys. Um, the gospel is being developed from a, in seed form. A son will crush the head. But I mean, we want to know. The prophets are searching. Who is the seed? What specific line is it coming from? There's 12 tribes. Which of the tribes? You end Genesis going, I guess it's Joseph's line, right? It's Ephraim or Manasseh, Joseph's two sons. And then you get the switch with David of like, God has chosen Judah, the tribe of, of Judah. He's chosen Jerusalem, this random hill, like in the middle, you know, like you get all these particular things of like how the Messiah is coming. And you get that he's going to be a king and like Zechariah, like not just the king of Israel, the king of all the earth. And when that king is established on Zion and rules, rules with a rod of iron, the law goes forth and the nations stream in, right? And the glory of the earth goes, fills the earth and you get a restoration of all things. So you're getting this like, you go from a generic story, God's going to save all things and make all things good. And we get, the, we get the language, we get the tutoring, we get the hermeneutical weight of like, what is good about it? And you know what I mean? The prophets are expounding on the goodness of what's to come. And all of, even the law, the law of Moses, all forward looking to the latter days. Why? Why is it so forward looking? And why is it so like apocalyptic? The language of the, the Old Testament is so like judgment, fire. You know, God's going to come and encounter man. He's going to, all the proud are going to be brought low. You know, like, things are getting burned up. You know what I mean? Like, angels and people are clashing. Like, God's going to cleanse. He has a controversy. He's, he's like, there's like blood up to you know, his robes. And why is it, and you know what I mean? Like, we, like Jesus, come on. 
be a sensible, like, political, like, just wave a wand and just fix things. Like, why is he coming in such a way? And it all, like I said, the law tutors us. And it's all, it's, it's all instructing us of the nature of sin. Of how, what God thinks of sin. How he deals with sin. That sin demands a cataclysmic encounter. A cataclysmic, just like, you know, my son's not that old, so I can't do the sun analogies, but I just, you know, he's a great kid, so I'm not going to, I'll use, I'll use a generic make-believe kid. A make-believe kid just like, you know, knocks over something and breaks something. You go, what have you done? And you start, like, doing some intense discipline, like, you don't, right? Because you would tutor him, like, what you did isn't big enough of a deal to necessitate, like, a crazy punishment, right? But when a great punishment happens, it instructs the kid, whoa. I crossed a certain line, and my parents are communicating something. And this is what all the day of the Lord language is. It's like, this is what God, who is holy, thinks about the sin of man, and the pride of man, and the boasting and exalting of themselves, and the self-reliance. All the things that led Adam out of the garden. And he's going to do salvation in a way that the only ones who inherited are the ones who have been brought low already through the mercy of God. And so there's such a crazy tutoring that happens throughout the Old Testament that we can't stand to just lose it and, and, and throw it out. Um, when we talk about Israel, I'm talking about um, all sorts of theories. I'm, I'm just literally talking about the biological sons of Abraham, right? That they, 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 that's what I mean when I say Israel. When I say, when I say Gentiles, I'm talking about the nations of the earth. It's, it's, it's a little more complicated now because... The Jews have been dispersed to all the nations. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, we're distinct, but equal, just like male and female, right? Equal in how God loves us, in how God's going to save us, equal. Equal in how depraved we are, like that too, but distinct in roles, the same way with male and female, right? Equal in all these ways, but distinct. God's created us differently. There's different roles. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands, right? There's just different roles that are given, and it's the same with, with, with how God has done uh, Jew and Gentile. Different roles, and we're going to see in redemption, not different ways to be saved, but different ways that God is, I'm going to say the word administrating his covenant, that's going to make no sense to you. Hopefully it will make sense um, by, the, by the end of the teaching. Um, I'm going to read a quote. There's a problem that we have. Is, so I grew up in church. And the Old Testament's kind of like stories. You guys, you guys, if you grew up in church, you know. They're all kind of silly. You talk about Noah's Ark, and it's not cataclysmic, you know? Like, the whole earth is, is being shaken. And you, got, you guys remember, like, the theory, the comets and the moons getting hit with the rocks and water's coming down and ice is being dumped down on the poles. Like... If we don't get that picture. We kind of get this playful, the monkeys are hanging out to the ark, and the whales are you know, just swimming. They're like, oh, I can go there. We're too big. The birds are just flying along. It's like we get this picture of, like, it's not real, you know? We, get, we all get the fun kid stories. We don't get the tutoring of, like, what, what this means. And so what happens is, implicitly, we get fed a replacement theology. Old Testament doesn't matter. Israel doesn't matter. These stories don't matter. What really, what really matters is when you get... When you get to the New Testament. And um, so I'm going to read a quote. I'm not going to say who it's by. It's by a theologian. And um, 
And it doesn't matter who, who it is because it's, this is just a good quote in, in encapsulating the, the attitude towards the Jews um, within, within just, I would say, like just theology. Um, the church, then, as the people of the New Covenant, have taken the place of Israel, and national Israel is nothing more than the empty shell from which the pearl has been removed and which has lost its function in the history, history of redemption. Does that make sense? So the idea is, Israel is a placeholder. They're kind of useful for a certain time. But God always intended that that would just end one day, and then the new Israel would begin. Which, again, how do you wrestle with the hermeneutical weight? Why all this weight, if that was the plan? Right, and also it just doesn't make, really make a lot of sense in the sense that how does that happen? Like, I can I go one day and like throw Roger in a pit and just appear to you guys and go, I am the new spiritual Roger. I I have inherited all the good of Roger. I have taken away all the bad of Roger, and I am now fulfilled as the new Roger. You shall relate to me as Roger. I can take all his stuff, everything that he owned. His company, anything bad though that any desk he has, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not gonna deal with that stuff. You know what I mean? It's like it's just you. It's just hard. Like how do you do that? How do you just come up? If if that is, if, I mean, so if this theologian is correct, the New Testament, instead of being like this, would be like a lot of weight to to try and explain how that happened. Because a lot of people would be angry about that, <laughs> right? But why why it happens is interesting because. Um, if you guys know, you guys, how many of you guys are familiar just with like the history of the Jew, biblically, and then, so a lot of people, you, you guys understand, God made covenant with Israel, um, they crossed over the Jordan, um, it's kind of like the time of the judges, and then the time of the, the kings, and then the kingdom splits, and they kind of go back, you know, some kings are good, some kings are bad, um. I mean, the, king, the David's kingdom is considered the golden age. Um, and, and then what happens is uh, the, the northern tribes, there's a civil war, right? So the ten tribes in the north split from Judah. Uh, what's the second one? Judah and Benjamin? Two tribes. And the ten tribes are taken away into captivity by, by, by Syria, right? Assyrian Empire. Um, and then they're just assimilated with all the nations. Right, that's what the Syrians did, and then the and then the, the two southern tribes were like, "We're still Judah. The Messianic promises are still with us. We're safe. We got the temple. Like, we're good to go. God's not going to allow these pagan guys. Like, we have David slayed the Philistines. Like he's not going to allow these pagan Babylonians to just come and take down the temple and take us to slavery like they're doing with all the other nations. And what happens?" Taken to captivity, and Jeremiah is warning them: "Don't th don't say that fingers right." Seven, and he says, 70 years they're going to be taken into captivity." And he says, "Why? Because they've transgressed the covenant, and th and there's repercussions to transgressing the covenant. Well, that's they're very uh, distinctly spelled out in Deuteronomy, and so you have you have the exile uh, you have the exile, and what happens at the end of the seventy years?" Did they, call, did they go back, as Jeremiah predicted? Yes or no? Yeah, no, at the end of the 70 years, they do. Almost exactly at the 70-year mark, Daniel comes on the scene, 
Daniel actually grew up as a young boy hearing um, the words of Jeremiah, right? And he remembers 70 years, and that's it. Right? And this is why Daniel kept himself pure in Babylon. And so he does, right? A lot of the Jews become Babylonian. They get Babylonian names, they get, they get rich, they get, they're given responsibilities and stuff. And Daniel's like, we're not meant to be here. We have, we have oracles. We have prophecies. We're stewarding the Messiah, the salvation of all the earth. We're the, we're the Jewish people, the light to the nation. So he's remembering and recalling the words of, of Moses. He's recalling the words of Daniel. And he says, at the end of the seven years, he gets on his knees and he prays and he repents on behalf of the entire nation, right? And then he, Gabriel encounters him, uh, tells him, you are going back, but it's not what you're, it's, it's not it. It's not the end of the world salvation, you know, day of the Lord. It's not going to be that. And so uh, the Babylonian king, or uh, at the time it's Persia, right? So uh, Cyrus says, all right, you guys are free to go back. Ezra and Nehemiah, those guys, right? They rebuild the temple. But what's, what what's wrong with the temple that they build? The glory of God that filled that temple with Solomon that all the priests fell on their faces and said, you know, the Lord endures, he's good, his love endures forever. That glory never comes back. And, and also, they're looking at the temple and going, it doesn't look like the same. It's a rubble heap. Like, you go there, you can see some of the rubble. Like, it's just rocks and like, we glue this thing together. This doesn't communicate glory. Like, this is like this rubble heap, right? This is, this is, you see that in, um, uh, what, what's the prophet, uh, Haggai, uh, no, prophesy, uh, grace, grace, grace to the mountains, grace, uh, with shouts of grace, grace, the capsule, all right, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a popular uh, passage, um, but, that, but, but what that's talking about is don't despise the days where it's the rubble, because God's going to eventually fill this thing with glory, right, and it's going to become his footstool, God will come, and Messiah will come and dwell from this temple in Jerusalem, um, and then what happens? Because then you get the you get the post-exilic prophets, right? And then like God stops talking after Malachi for four hundred years, right? You, there's a pause, and that pause actually yeah, there's no prophetic word. It's actually kind of it's kind of a hard thing for the Jews because the the last phrase in Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, is that I would not spite you with the curse. So it's not exactly a positive last way that God had, had left it with the Jews. It's a 400 year period where there's no prophetic activity and in, in, the, in that time um, what happens is so uh, you have all the context to the first coming. You have um, like you guys ever wonder where the Pharisees came from? You're, you're reading in the New Testament about the Pharisees and you're just like where in the Old Testament the Pharisees? What is this? Like Sanhedrin, Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, Zealots, all these groups, they, they are all developing in that interim time. And it's called, in scholarship, it's called the intertestamental period, literally between Old Testament and New Testament. 400 years of things developing. One of the crucial things that's developing is, um, I mean, it's Hanukkah, so it's appropriate time to talk about it. You guys know about the Maccabees, right? The Hasmonean dynasty, where literally... All right, so it's a little history lesson. It's they're conquer so they're conquered. There are, there are people who are prophesied, you will be the head, not the tail. You will rise higher and higher, right? And the nations will go lower and lower, right? They have a calling to be a leader, 
amongst the nations, and instead they're conquered. Assyria, Babylon, Medo Persia. What's next? Who takes over Medo Persia? Alexander the Great, right? Greece. Alexander the Great like dies at 30. <laughs> like, guy conquered the whole world by 30, and then just dies. Um, and it's actually an interesting story, but. So he dies nine years into conquering, and his kingdom gets divided by his military leaders, right? And so you got the the Ptolemaic Empire out of Egypt and the Seleucid Empire in Syria. So literally Israel, north of them, they're being ruled by the Seleucids. South of them, they're being ruled by the Ptolemaic Empire. Um, And what happens is during the Seleucid Empire, this guy, who's another picture of the Antichrist, decides... I'm going to ban Judaism because Judaism is a problem. Because all the other nations, we can go in with Hellenism and Hellenize it. Right? Hellenism is Greek philosophy, Greek culture. Alexander the Great is going to spread it throughout the whole world. And it kind of just levels everything. So it's easy to rule people. All their thoughts become just like the same. Right? And then they'll pay taxes, and it's like you don't have to deal with rebellions. When you have people who have promises and prophecies, you have rebellions, because they're not going to want to be ruled. So this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, he's the, he, it's a strange name, but Seleucid Empire. He, uh, he's, a, he's, the, he's a ruler of the Seleucid Empire. He comes into the temple. He bans Judaism. You cannot practice this anymore. You guys are a problem. In fact, we're going to go into the temple. I'm going to sacrifice a pig. These are kosher Jews. You have to sacrifice a pig in your holiest altar to Zeus, right? And, and furthermore, he's going to the small cities and villages and telling his army, set up a pig to sacrifice to Jew. Grab one of the old men. Let them come forth and make a sacrifice. And if they don't kill them, and do that one by one so that all the villages become heathens like us. And what happens? This old man named Mattathias and his five sons don't like that plan. They kill the army. They run to the mountains. And what starts is this, what's called uh, uh, the zealot movement. And you guys, it's really helpful to understand the zealot movement because it gives so much context to reading the New Testament. Um, I'm not going anywhere <laughs> along with like what I plan, but... Um, so you get, uh, so you get the, and it's it's really inspiring stories. The Hanukkah comes out of that, like, I mean, like the the solutions are the general, the general leader under Alexander, right? So they still do the phalanx thing, right? Where they're like, you guys watch the movies, they all have the spears vertically. The first few rows have it like, um, so they march in, in tight formation and they have all this momentum, but they're really weak if you attack them from the sides. These guys have spears and can't use them. And so, so Maccabees are pretty much just ambushing these guys um, every time they're trying to take over Jerusalem. And actually gives them a hundred years of peace. They finally settle with the salutes and saying, we're going to leave you guys alone. You're free to practice your religion. And so what happens is people, all these zealots get inspired and say, this is the new blueprint. This is how we come out of the oppression of the nations. The Romans are over us. We're not called to be, like, we're not called to have these nations ruling over us. Maybe 
And I, this is a, this is this is the this is this is a bad thing. The, the Hanukkah story is great and all, right? This is actually a, something that becomes severely bad for the nation, because they say maybe God is not pleased with our zeal, our lack of zeal, and maybe we need to go. And by zeal, they mean the flesh, right? Like fight, they're ready to fight our enemies. Maybe if we fight the enemies, God's miraculous power will come, and the day of the Lord will be initiated. So they're saying we can initiate the judgment, the righteousness, the salvation of God. We can do it if we, our small bands of armies, get zealous enough. And literally, guys are saying, I'm the Messiah. Out in the desert, in Judean wilderness, out in the, the, in the Sea of Galilee, those are the two hotbeds for zealous activity. And they're going, maybe I'm the guy. And they're going, they're gathering these armies and saying, watch for the sign. When I enter Jerusalem, the walls are going to fall down. Watch for the sign that Jordan's going to split and we're going to go march in. All right, why does this give us so much context? So you guys remember, um, we don't have to remember, we pull it up. You got uh, Luke 17. The Olivet uh, Discourse, right? Um, And this is the, the, the parallel passage, pretty much the, the disciples are asking Jesus, when is, what are, when is the end coming, and what is the sign of, of your appearing? What does that mean? What is that, why did they ask Jesus that? And what is the sign of your appearing? Why did they ask Jesus that? Why did Peter have a sword when, you know, before Jesus was crucified? Right? It's because the, the apostles, the disciples, they actually are sympathetic to the zealot movement. A lot of Judaism is sympathetic to the zealot movement. They're, they're believing that we're, we're, actually, we're actually at a perfect time where someone's going to come, a Messiah's going to be raised up, and they're going to go into Rome and destroy Rome. All right? Um, Daniel had the 70-week prophecy, right? He says to Daniel, you're going back to Jerusalem, but it's not, it's not the time yet. Wait 70 weeks, and it's not just 70, like, weeks, American weeks, week of years, right? 490 years. And so that time clock, that prophetic time clock, 490 years, is about to expire when Jesus is on the scene. And so everyone's looking, where's the Messiah coming from? Where's the King of Israel? Where, when is he coming? And this guy, Jesus, appears on the scene after John the Baptist, and he's doing miracles. He's healing people. Everyone's going, hmm. This is why Jesus is saying, don't tell people of the miracles I'm doing, because they're going to make me king by force. They're going to, like, they're, he understands how the heart of his people, they're, they're, they have their heart set on the flesh, all right? Um, so um, they're asking, what is the sign of your appearing? Because they're, they're thinking Jesus, is, at any point, is going to march into Jerusalem, into Jerusalem and destroy the Romans, and then go take the Roman Empire. And establish the kingdom of God militarily. And he says, um, like 1720, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Right? So what signs is he talking about? 
It's talking about those, the messianic, the signs that the other false messiahs are doing. They're saying, look, wait for the sign. That's the signal for us to go. Um, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. Right? So, and that's, and, and in a parallel passage, you get the, it's not in the inner rooms, right? Because that's what's, what's going on in, in the inner rooms. They're conspiring, gathering the armies. What's going on in the wilderness? They're gathering the armies, right? So he's basically correcting not the idea of the kingdom of God, but what he's correcting is the expectation of how the kingdom of God comes. They're believing it comes by the strength of the flesh. And Jesus is saying, look, it doesn't happen this way. Um, skip ahead of the, uh, all right, so, And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes from, and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will, so will the Son of Man be in, in that day. So what he's saying is that the kingdom of God doesn't come in a synergistic way where we rally with our zeal, get all our strength, get all the armies there. God, you're with us, and we're going to march, and God, some miracles are going to come, and we're going to be victorious. Like, that's not how it comes. Right? That's not what any of the prophets have said. This is, this is what we've made up. This is a tradition of the zealot movement that we've made up. It comes, like Daniel said, a rock from heaven, right? The, the, the empires are building, like Daniel sees the vision of the head of gold, right? Like the empires are going to build one on top of another. And it's not like a small band of army comes and topples over. The, it's like, no, a rock comes from heaven, right? Sin... Monergistic, apocalyptic, God alone will come and smash the kingdoms of the earth like pottery and initiate the day of the Lord. All right, so this is important to understand because one of the reasons why there's this replacement theology is because the promise to the Jews of the kingdom of God coming through their Messiah, it seems to have failed because the kingdom of God doesn't come. Rome still conquered, right? In fact, uh, Rome destroys Jerusalem. And so, um, so, the, so there, we have to answer that question. If the kingdom of God didn't come, um, how is God faithful to his promises, right? And obviously we know, we should know, the kingdom of God is set to come at the second coming. God will bring that thing about according to all his promises. But what he's correcting is, it's not coming by the strength of man. It doesn't come in synergy to to our zeal and our flesh. It comes it comes by God alone, right? And, and so Luke 18. But when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's the question. It's not what will he'll find zealous people. It's will he find faith on the earth? Though because at the in those last days there's gonna be so much suffering, the great tribulation, right? What what the Old Testament calls Jacob's trouble. There's gonna be so much desolation. All of us. All of us are going to be so tempted to be in complete despair, right? To the point there's a great falling away. Think about that. Think about when we had trials in our life, just small trials. And it's like, oh, is God really? Oh, God. Like, think about when God presses the earth with the wine press. And we're going, oh, God, where, where are you, when are you coming? Why are you letting us suffer? Our, our houses are burnt down. Like, our children are being killed. Like, why, why are you letting us suffer? And in that day... We need an apocalyptic hope. God will come, not through synergy, right? There's a set a point in time and God will come. And we so we have to wait patiently, set our hope on Him in prayer. Um, 
All right, so what happens with the zealot movement? Where it, where it goes? And by the way, who was Barabbas? Crucify him. Like, 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 right? They're going, and Pilate's going, what about Barabbas? Let me release Barabbas. I want to crucify this guy. What do the crowd say? No, crucify him, Jesus. And they go, no. And, and so they end up uh, crucifying Jesus. Who was Barabbas? It was a zealot. Who were the two thieves? They were zealots. How do we know that? We know that because crucifixion was not just a general way of dying. Crucifixion was a particular Roman torture device because every empire is trying to deal with how do we do, what do we do with these Jews? They're so zealous for their laws and their temple. We can't rule them. They fight back. They keep causing insurgencies and revolts. They don't pay their taxes. They, they're, they're causing all these problems. What do we do with, how do we quell the Jews? How do we crush the rebellion? How do we keep them at peace? We just, the Romans are like, we just want peaceful people that pay their taxes to Caesar. And just, you know? And so they, in, they implement a public torture device as a public service announcement. Hey, zealots, before you get radicalized, look what the end is for you. Right? And so, so and Jesus ends up being crucified. Um, and how does the zealot movement come to an end? Right? Because it continues on. Right? Even in the book of Acts, we see a references to the zealot movement. And what happens is, in 70 AD, right, this is, Jesus dies somewhere 30, 33 AD, right? Some of the apostles are still alive. But in 70 AD, um, the temple is finally destroyed, right? The, 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 Rome, the Romans say, enough is enough with these rebels. We're coming, and we're coming bringing the big guns. Right, the Spacian, like they come in and take Jerusalem, and if you read about the story of it, it's horrific, like horrific stories, um, and and all spelled out within the covenant, right? The curses of the covenant, and this is where this is where the strength of the flesh led, and then in um, and the zealots didn't really go away even after seventy A.D., and then in one thirty-five A.D. Simon Barcoba, have you guys heard of Simon Barcoba, the Barcoba revolt? He, he, he's actually like doing miracles and like things that people are going, whoa, this guy, he must be the Messiah. And they actually end up taking some ground and the Romans go, okay, enough is enough. And they burn Jerusalem to, to the ground. They change the name of it. They change the name of Jerusalem. They're literally like the covenant spell out. They, they're blotting out the name of Israel. They changed the name of Jerusalem to Aeropolitan, something, something not <laughs> Jewish. They changed the name of the whole region of Judea to what? Palestine, right? Because Palestine is a war for Philistine, Israel's enemy. They literally changed the name to Israel's enemies. And what happened to the Jews? They're scattered. They don't have a homeland. For how many years? Like a lot of years. They don't, they don't come back until 1948. Mm -hmm. And think about this. This is what scholars say. Without a homeland, if you have a people who are uh, refugees, or they, for whatever reason, they're separated from their homeland, they last three generations and then they're gone. They assimilate. So to give you an example, if, I was, if Korea was destroyed, um, 
presumably by North Korea, I guess. Um, <laughs> the biggest bad example. Let's say China annexes Korea, right? Like, we, like three generations. My kid might still know kimchi, kimchi, Korean. You guys probably know it by now. His kid might still eat kimchi. Third generation won't know what kimchi is anymore. The, the tradition, all the, it's all gone. That's what happens without a homeland. And the Jews are out of the homeland for more than three generations. They're out of the homeland for 1,900-something years, right? And in that time, they're not just at peace. Everywhere they go, there's an issue. They settle in France and Spain and all these Gentile nations. And at some point, they're in Arabia. And they're finally, we're in the desert. No one's going to bother us. And then Islam pops up, right? Like, everywhere they go, they're just being crushed. The Spanish Inquisition, right? They're just being blamed for the Black Plague. Um, and then they settle in Germany. And what happens? They're going, some, some Jews are going, this is, this is the new homeland. Like, we don't need to go back to Jerusalem. This is nice. This is cozy. And what happens? Holocaust. The Holocaust. All right, so consider... Um, Consider 1900 years of history where Jews are, don't have a land anymore. And you're a scholar somewhere in Europe, and you're trying to make sense of this hermeneutical weight. You're going, oh, all these passages. Covenant faithfulness, God's covenant faithfulness, God of Israel, God of Israel, God of Israel, God of Israel. It's literally the most used name for God. God of Israel, everywhere. Promises, promises, covenant, 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 David. You're going, all these promises, the kingdom of God, the day of the Lord. Going, whoa. Where are they? And what do you do? You have to come up with an idea, a system that reconciles the Bible. And so they do. And it's called replacement theology. So we, the church, has become the spiritual Israel. We've taken over the place of Israel. Um, it's nice because the Bible can kind of like make sense. But then in 1948, problem, <laughs> they, they miraculously become a nation again. Right? And a lot of theologians, it's interesting when you read theologians who, in their ministry, they have part of their ministry before 1948 and part of their ministry after 1948, and they don't change a thing. In fact, some of them double down. Right? Um, so, and, and guys, we're living in that generation. That's like in our, some of you guys probably are alive in that time. Um, we're, we are on precipice of something unusual, right? And let me, talk, let me just say something about the Holocaust. Right, because why does why does Israel matter? Why does replacement theology matter? Does it really matter? Does it have a, does it bear any weight application? In 1948, um, all right, so I, I talk about the Jews are living in Israel. What does the church in Germany look like in 1948 in, in before the Holocaust? Is there a strong church? Yes or no? Strong? Yes. They must be wicked, right? They led to Hitler. The church is. 54% Protestant, 40% Catholic. 94% of Germany are Christian or Catholic. Think about that. Is that America? Yes. America's like five, I don't know, it's a very small percentage of believers. 94% Catholic or Christian, meaning 94% of those guys grew up with this. And Hitler rises up. The Pope and, or not the Pope, but the Catholics and Christians, and it's the Protestant, and also theology. Like, like, if you study theology, Germany was like the main theological epicenter at that time. 
right? Or at least before, like, I mean, Luther comes from Germany, right? So this is like where the center of European theology is coming out of Germany. And they don't know what to do with the Jews. Theologically, they haven't had a response except to say what everyone else is saying. They're cursed. We're the new people of God. They have, they're a placeholder. They're in an empty shell. We have nothing to do with them anymore. And so when Hitler rises up and he proposes the Jewish problem and the Aryan solution, actually a lot of his inspiration for the anti-Semitism, and think about that word anti-Semitism, Semitism, right? Uh, Semite comes from Shem, anti-Semitism. It's the, we're arrogant towards the covenant people. We're resisting like Ham did, right? We don't want to be in the tents of the elect one. We want our own version of salvation. We want a new story. We want to do it our way, God. We don't want to, we don't want to submit. And so anti-Semitism actually comes from the church, right? To the point that one uh, theologian puts it this way, that there was a theological holocaust before there was actually a holocaust. Right, so crystal knock happens, the night of broken glass, and all of a sudden, I mean, it's like you're one day, public policy is one thing, and the next day, boom, they're being shipped out. Next morning, they're being shipped out on trains. And who are the ones turning them in? The country's 94% Christian or Catholic. It's the church that are turning the Jews in, right? And literally, not just standing idly, but the ones who are complicit with the Holocaust. Right? And, and one, one scholar said, and all the church around the world, it's not like, I mean, they, they know what's going on. Right? The concentration camps haven't been revealed, but they know what's going on. That the Jews are being shipped, there's a, there's a genocide happening. And one scholar says it this way, the church didn't think it was enough of a, there was, it was not enough of a matter to necessitate a theological or practical response. Our theology has made us so an, an, uh, an, antipet, antipetic, sympathetic, and we had so much antipathy for the Jews theologically that when they were being mass executed, sent to the concentration camp, we wiped off the face of the earth. We just said, doesn't really even necessitate a response. How long ago was this? 19 what? 43, 42, like, I don't know the exact years, right? What was that, six, eight years ago? Some of our parents, some of our grandparents might have been alive in that time, right? And think about the perspective for us living here in this area. Do you know that in that time, a lot of, a lot of uh, messianism had risen up again within Eastern Europe? Uh, a lot of guys claiming to be the Messiah, a lot of, where did all those guys go? If they weren't killed, or before they were killed, a lot of them escaped to the United States. Where? Brooklyn, Lakewood, or right like upstate New York, like this area. And this is why this area today is the second highest population of Jews outside of the land, right? And even 1948, Israel getting their land was a response to the Holocaust because we realized without a land, these people are going to be annihilated. What's going on now with Israel? Are they at peace on all sides as the covenant promised? They've been regathered, brought to the nation, peace on every side. No peace, right? Literally, Iran is trying to build nuclear weapons to block out Israel from the face of the earth. 
Palestinians are trying to destroy Israel. The, it, you just name all the nations surrounding her, right? And um, literally, the Iranian special forces is named QUD. I don't know how you pronounce that, um, but it means Jerusalem. Because their whole objective of the special forces is to liberate Jerusalem from Israel, right? So you have a situation. But all, all I'm trying to get at is something worse than the Holocaust is coming. Something worse than Crystal Knot is coming. It's not. I'm not just saying that based on anti-Semitism. I'm, I'm saying that based on what the Great Tribulation is that's going to come to the earth. What Matthew 24, Jesus said, a time unparalleled to any suffering before or after. So something worse than the Holocaust is going to come to the Jews. And what will be the church's response at that time? If crystal knock happens, I mean, it's sudden, the night of broken glass, right? Sudden, just things change. Jews are being shipped out or whatever. What if, will we, will we have enough theologically to say, we lay our life down. This is God's people. They have promises, right? To them are the covenants, the glory, the giving up. Like, to them is the Messiah. And to them is, is the headship of the nations. They have a calling. And so we... As Gentiles who have received the benefit from their covenant, the salvation that was theirs, the, the Holy Spirit, it's not holy, it's Rock HaKodesh, it's theirs, it's promised to the house of Israel. We have the first fruits of it. We, all these blessings that are for Israel, we're experiencing as Gentiles, right? And, and we'll, this is what Romans 11 says. And what is our response? And so this is, these are some of the reasons why it matters that, uh, that as a church, um, we get serious about the scriptures. Because if you're, you're going to just look to the internet blogs, and you know, like, you're going to get a lot of anti-Semitism within the church. You're going to get a lot of, you're just going to get a lot of stuff like that. The replacement theology, that narrative is very strong within the, within the church today, as it was Obviously, uh, in 1948, in 1940, uh, in Nazi Germany, and so this is why it's important that we we look at these things. Um, let's all turn to Romans 11. All right, before we, before we get there, anyone questions? I might be losing, I don't know, like, questions? Anything I said that just kind of, like, was confused about? All good? I was going to say, though, um, I've got to get in my old testament. <laughs> you know? I mean, thank you. I mean, you just went through everything. If you went to life, we kind of did briefly, like, drive by through some of this stuff that you're saying. But the depth that you're bringing is just another layer of that. And I just, I appreciate it because it, it just challenges us. I mean, as he's going through the Old Testament. Do you guys think so? Does it challenge you to go, I've got to get in my Old Testament to, to really capture this. So um, so let me let me ask you one, one, yeah. one question. And, and again, we'll read that. But replacement theology, um, again, give me that definition again. But I am a congregational, I'm a member of the church. I just come to church. Yeah. Like, I just come here and show up. Yeah. What does that matter for me? How do you play it out? What, what is, yeah, what, what does that matter for me? Like, you know, what does that matter for me? <laughs> Boom. This was not yeah. welded. 
Yeah, that, the second chair that went to that, it went. But um, yeah, so why does it matter for me that you know I, I have a, I, I, work, I work, I'm busy, I, I try to run my as best as I can. What does that matter to me now? And I have some thoughts, but I, but I don't want you to. Yeah, I'm actually gonna, I'm actually probably gonna end with that. Okay, that's fine. That but yeah, it makes, I mean, it matters to, it matters to the Lord. Um, the reason why the Lord calls himself the God of Israel, that's not a small thing, like a random thing. He actually stakes the refuge, if you read this Old Testament, the reputation of his name amongst the Gentiles, he stakes on the covenant of Israel. And that's why he disciplines them so hardly. One day, like hardly, his name is defamed amongst the nations. He calls himself, identifies the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and you think about those things, and we never sing about it. We never sing about the God of Israel, right? Because we kind of like, oh, that's weird, ethnic, um, right? Post enlightenment, it's racism, can't, can't do that, God, not the rules. Um, Jesus is Jewish. We thought about the one we pray to and worship and sing, he's Jewish. And not just incarnationally, he became a Jew, and now he's not. No. At the book of Revelation, my friend was bringing this up to me. It's the line of the tribe of Judah forever. He, he's a Jew. The, the people he's coming, that he's heartbroken for, that he's the king of Israel, they're his brothers. Right? He's not just David's lord. He's David's son. He relates to these people. They're, right? The least that you did to my people, you've done unto me. He relates as a brother. Um, and so it's, it's, it matters to God. You guys know the story of Joseph? Right? They throw him in a pit. The 11 brothers are jealous. He becomes the king of Egypt. Like, not the king of Egypt, but right? second in command. He does a thing with a famine. He stores the grain. It brings salvation. Right? It literally saves the nation and saves Israel. 11 brothers. The brothers come back. They don't recognize him. And Joseph weeps. They think they, they're thinking he's just a Gentile. And then he reveals his identity and he weeps before his brothers. Right? This is the story of Jesus. They didn't recognize him. His, he didn't get what he wanted, the worship he wanted. You, like, like uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They don't recognize him. They sell him out for a zealot. Right? And he's in heaven praying for his enemy. He's praying. He's desiring and longing to return. And we'll, uh, hopefully we'll get to Zechariah 12. That, that they see him, and it says they see the one they pierced. Think about that. When Jesus appears in the sky, somehow they're going to see that in his resurrected body, the scars are still there. They see the one they pierced. They weep and they mourn as for their only child. And the spirit of supplication is, is poured out. And this is how what Paul says in Israel is saved on that, in that day. Right? So Jesus is longing for that for that return. So it's, it's the, the story, what I'm trying to say is the story isn't just generic. It's a very familial element of intimacy to this story that as Gentiles adopted in, we're not called to come into the household and be like, yeah, 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 yeah. it's fine, I don't hear that stuff. Let's talk about me again. <laughs> right? It's like we are called to be like, like Ruth uh, or Naomi. Your God shall be my God as we're adopted in. Your people will be my people. We are in this family together. And Father, if there is a son that's missing right now, you harden them for their disobedience. Help me not, this is, we're going to go to Romans 11, help me not to be arrogant toward that son, 
right? Saying, I replaced him. Help me to be humble and to join you in that, in that longing for that son to return. Kind of drawing on the parable of the lost son. Um, but Romans, uh, Romans is interesting because what's happening is um, Jews are a nuisance, right? Everywhere they go, they're a nuisance. Um, so they're a nuisance in the Roman Empire. They're expelled out of Rome. Right? The book of Romans is written to who? The church in, let's see, Rome. Rome. Jews are expelled out of Rome, and then they're brought back in. And in the time that they were, the Jews were gone, the church in Rome was all Gentiles. And they started kind of like coming up with these ideas of, of what got, what, because think about it, in a few short years, Israel is about to be crushed, Right? So it's a very early form of replacement theology. Israel's being starting to be disciplined, and they're going, what do we say of this? They're not even in this, they're not in the city anymore, and they start kind of embracing these narratives. And so when Paul writes this letter, guys, Romans is a letter. When you write letters, especially when you're an apostle, you're not just like, I got some free time. Let me just like, let me just like make, let me just like write flowery language. Let me just come up with some theories. Let me just write. Like, it's very practical, right? You don't have that much time as an apostle, especially for Apostle Paul. You're going on sea, you're going on the land, you're climbing mountains, you're, you're getting, you're getting like, stoned. And so he's going to the church in Rome, in Romans 1, I want to bear a certain part, a certain fruit in you. There's something missing. There's something lacking that I want to perfect. Uh, Romans 16. Um, in Romans 15, he says this. Because he's an apostle to who, specifically? Who is he designated towards? Gentiles. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. And he's saying, as an apostle to the Gentiles, I'm offering before God an offering of Gentile, a saved, humble, like, by the mercy of God, you know, believing Gentiles. I want to disciple them in the Great Commission. I want them to be pleasing to God. I want them to be perfected and mature. I want them to have all that, you know, I want them to know all this, right? And not to be ignorant of all these things. And so he says um, that, your, that your faith will be acceptable before God. Romans 16, he ends with that, the obedience of faith. And so what he's driving at is there's an issue. There's something that's not clicking in the church in Rome. And I believe Romans 9 through 11 is the point of the letter, right? It's a sandwich. You guys know the sandwich? Start with something good. Then you get to the, <laughs> what I need to talk to you about. And by the way, you're a great guy, right? And not that, not, not exactly that Paul has to do that or he is doing that, but basically the, that 9 through 11 is a hard thing to receive, right? Especially 11, right? So I mean, I'm going to, um, let's read it together. Let's, um, anyone have a nice mask, mask, clear voice? <laughs> what an interesting time, right? Anyone want to want to take it? Maybe just read like the first part of it. Uh, Romans 11. Just read like the first, maybe like six verses, and I'll ask someone else to read the next. I ask then that God reject his people by no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. 
Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to, to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Alright, so if anyone wants to take the next few, few verses. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it, was, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. <clears throat> and David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. Okay, here, and here's the question that, that Paul's answering, right? It's not just a hypothetical, it's a real question that's being asked within the Roman church. Can anyone take the next few? So I ask, did they stumble, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel je jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? Now I am speaking to you, Gentiles. In, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the re reconciliation of the world, what would their acceptance mean for life from the dead? If the dough offered is as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. But if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, Although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. <laughs> then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Mm -hmm. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. You stand fast in faith. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither would he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity to those in God's kindness to you, provided you continue in, in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. But God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Mm. Alright, anyone want to take the rest? Uh, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are replicable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has, been, who has given the gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. <laughs> It's awesome. Paul ends with doxology. So to answer a question, that's the hope for the church, right? That seeing the issue of the covenant and the mystery make us actually see God in greater glory, right? More multifaceted dimension of His wisdom and and the way He's doing things is not like man. It's not according to the wisdom of man. It's not according to the flesh, the philosophies, and all the ways we think we're so awesome. Like. God did the cross. He crushed his son. Like he is working in a different wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, and Paul is seeing through the mind of Christ. He's be, he, Paul's a Jew, right? He's being, he was tutored, and he was studying under Gamaliel. He's being tutored in the law and the prophets. And so this is, I mean, this passage, if you get what it's talking about, I mean, it's just, like, like first thing you got to realize is he is talking to, about two groups of people. Right? Jew and Gentile. I hope that's clear in, in, in that passage. Um, and he's asking, so the, when he says, so did they stumble in order that they might fall? What he's saying is, did their rebellion and their uh, idolatry and God's discipline of them, is that it? The covenant revoked. Did they stumble so as to fall from the grace of the covenant? And Paul's going, what? May it never be. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, Jeremiah 33. Um, you, you don't have to go there, but this, this is such a crazy passage because Israel's about to be taken captivity for into, into Babylon, and the question comes: What about the covenant? Is God still gonna do? Is He gonna be faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How? What's we're in discipline? Like He's He's the temple's destroyed by all these things. Um, I mean, they had. Um, So he quotes here out of, um, of Deuteronomy, right? For the, um, I'm in verse, at the end of verse 11. For I will restore the fortunes of this land as at first, says the Lord. Um, and that's uh, 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, all according to the covenant. And this is the name by which it will be called the Lord of our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne, or the house of Israel. 
And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and make sacrifices forever. This is the part you should understand. And this is so incredible. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will come, not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. So that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, right? And he says it again. Uh, uh, verse 24. Have you not observed that these people are saying? This is the question. The taunt is coming back, right? The same question as in Romans. Have they stumbled so as to fall? The Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose. Right? This is what they're asking. He says he rejected his people. Uh, Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Saying they're no longer a people. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and I will have mercy on them. So Paul is just like, guys, no, may it never be. Can they, can they stumble so as to fall? And then Paul can answer can the night and the, and the day, the covenant be broken so that the night and the day no longer come? Because if that can happen, sure, the, Israel, the covenant can be revoked. God is faithful to his promises. And this is, this is something that the instruction like, needs to wash over us, Gentile. God declared his name. You know that word loving kindness that we see? Right? Hesed, Hebrew. That word doesn't exist in English. We made it up, loving kindness. Because in Hebrew, the concept does exist. It means faithfulness to the covenant. God is a loyal God. He's a faithful God. And the promises that he's made, he's going to fulfill them. Not once, not one uh, stroke of the law is going to pass away. Right? Until all these things come to pass. Right? And so this hermeneutical weight, it, this is actually more than hermeneutical weight. This is God's promises. They're bound. He's bound himself to these things. And so the question is, guys, Jerusalem is about to be burnt down again in a, in a few short years. And still, may it never be. They're going to be dispersed through all the nations of the earth. May it never be. The Holocaust is going to come and wipe out 6 million Jews. There's, I think there's only like a couple million left, right? Like wiped out like 80% or something of their population. May it never be. These are disciplines. Right? This is the, this, so, so it gets to the point of the grafting analogy, right? Right, you guys know grafting is an amazing thing, right? If you graft, I, if I get this wrong, because I, I don't know, to, like I don't actually know, I know you you can graft like a Honeycrisp apple to like another apple tree that's not Honeycrisp. But let's pretend, just for the sake of this analogy, you can graft a pear branch into an apple tree, right? And what happens is you take the branch, cut it, break off the dead part of the, the natural apple branch, put them together, wrap it up, and what happens is the sap flows through into the, into the new branch and it, and it receives the nutrients, right? So when a pear branch gets grafted into the apple tree, does it bear pears or does it bear apples? We're all just guessing here. It's pears. They stay pears, right? So Gentiles, remain Gentiles. It's okay. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need. You don't need to become Jews, right? Salvation is coming to you're being, you're you're receiving of 
the rich stack of the of the covenant of the Old Testament of of the promises, right? The salvation that belongs to the Jews, right? All these things you're receiving, you've been grafted in. But then he makes the point: you don't support the root. Like where, does, where the sap is coming from? You don't support that thing with your little branch. That thing is supporting you, so why are you being arrogant towards that thing? And, by, and again, in the second point, God broke off because of pride. Right? Because the Jews, um, their, their pride was revealed in their self-reliance. The law was never meant to be the, how they inherit eternal life. Right? But they thought it was. They, they weren't relying on the, on the grace of God. They were relying on relying on, on the works of the law, whatever. So, so God breaks them off for their hardness, and then He's saying, "But Gentiles, you are now acting in haughtiness and arrogance. What's to say God's not going to break you off, right?" And He actually says, "And if you continue on, He will break you off. And if He confused back a wild olive branch, a Gentile, into this tree." How much easier would it be for God to actually bring back the natural branches? So he's saying there is going to be a return. Even though they're disciplined, they're hardened, they're in spirit of stupor, right? They're in blindness, as Isaiah says. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't perceive. Their hearts are hardened. This is a covenantal dealing. God's hidden his face from them. But God will have a, has a plan. One, to save some, right? There are, there are always a righteous realm. There are always uh, messianic believers and stuff. But there will be a day when God will graft back in the Jewish people. And I think that's going to actually coincide with the breaking off of the, of the arrogant Gentiles. And that might be the great falling away, I don't know. But um, the root supports us. Don't become arrogant towards the branches. That's the warning, right? Um, do not become arrogant. And then verse 25 Lest you be wise in your own sight. I want you, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. Right? And mystery, can't get into it. Just do a word study on mystery, Old Testament and New. Um, but this is how the apostles define their ministry. Right? The revelation of the mystery. The steward, they're stewarding the mystery. The mystery deals with the covenant. Right? And you get that in the Old Testament. And, and so he says. I don't want you to misunderstand what's exactly what exactly is happening by the Jews being broken off, hardened, partially hardened, he says. Right? This isn't a, a random event. It's prophesied to happen. And saying, so a partial hardening has come so that you Gentiles could come in. Um, and he says also, where Johnny was reading, to make them jealous. Where is Paul getting this from? Right? Is Paul getting a, a revelation, a new revelation, or is he, or is he, along with the spirit of revelation, right, expounding on the law and the prophets? Is there something there in the Old Testament that he's he knows is going to happen? Yes. Yes. Right. And so, um, so we'll, we'll, we'll end uh, kind of here. We'll kind of park here because this is there's a lot you could get into with Deuteronomy, but. Uh, Deuteronomy, Moses' last words, and it's kind of a summary of the Torah, the first five books. And they're about to go into the land, right? They're about to cross the Jordan. They've been wandering. They're about to go into the Jordan. And these are some last words. And what's important here is that Sinai, where God gave the Ten Commandments, gave the law, 
That's not where Israel comes into covenant with God. Right? You've got to ask yourself, at what point did the nation enter an eternal covenant with God, with Yahweh? An eternal, not meaning not one generation, two generations, eternally. You're born biologically a Jew. Guess what? You've been born into an everlasting covenant that has curses and blessings and has fulfillment, right? What point did that happen? And it happens, it happens, as we read it in Joshua, but Moses is setting it all up right before he dies, right? And um, so the context is, this is a very prophetic part of Deuteronomy. Uh, it kind of starts in 27. Um, <clears throat> so important that we read Deuteronomy like 27 to 33, because if you read the Old Testament and it doesn't make sense to you, like I'm talking Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Zephaniah, like, like when you read those prophets, and you're just like visions and dreams and angels, like what is happening, right? It makes a lot more sense when you read Deuteronomy, because the more you read Deuteronomy, the more you go, oh, that phrase, oh, it's repeated here and here and here and here, and then you realize what the prophets are doing, because Moses was commanded. Teach this song to the people and remember it and keep singing it to every generation. And then you realize that's what the prophets come to do. The people forget the covenant. The prophet comes in and reminds them. He sings the, they sing the song of Moses in just a different way. Same song, just different notes. Right? Same, like even some lines exactly the same. Like Isaiah starts the entire, his whole entire ministry with the exact same phrase that the song of Moses starts with. So that people understand what's happening. He's come as a prophet to remind us what Moses said. We are a nation in covenant. And these covenant curses that are about to come upon us, we can actually repent. And God will relent. But if we don't repent, don't be surprised when the curses come. And don't prophesy peace, peace, the curses won't come. God will do the curses because he promised he would do those curses. So, in other words... When God does the covenantal curses, and we say God's done with Israel, God's actually saying, I'm doing my faithfulness to the covenant. Mm. If you tell your kid, you do that, I'm going to discipline you. Right? And then you discipline the kid. And the kid goes, oh, parent, I'm, I'm not a son anymore, I'm out of the house, my parents have forsaken me. And you go, I'm being a parent. I'm, this is our relationship. I discipline you. This is parental activity. It's a loving activity. It's me being in a covenant relationship with you. If I didn't care about you, I'd just leave you alone. Leave you on the streets, let you crumble with the walls, right? Like, it's like, like, so God is being faithful. Seventy uh, Babylonian captivity, God being faithful. Assyrian captivity, God being faithful. And before he does that, he warns them through the prophets. He doesn't just surprise, you, you disobey, you're off in prison now, 70 years. It's please, like, look at Isaiah. So he's, these people are they're beseeching, what's, what's the word? They're, they're, they're practically begging Israel to turn. And they're saying, remember the covenant. We've played the harlot. We've turned to the gods of the nations. And we are a covenant people. We're in, we're in a marriage relationship. We're betrothed to God. He's our God. When we transgress the covenant of nations, they defame God, right? Like the name of the Lord is at stake and all these things. So um, read... Read that in the entire passage, all the, the phrasing you'll hear over and over through the prophets, all the day of the Lord language, you'll, you'll understand it's all talking about the same event in different ways. And so 32, the Song of Moses, it's a literal song, 
And God, I wish we knew how to sing it, but Moses gathered the congregation and sang this song, right? But before that, he gets the six tribes on one mountain, he gets six tribes on another mountain, and they literally declare blessings and curses, and they say amen, right? They're coming into covenant with God. They're saying, we're good with this. And the curses are way, 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 way longer and more intense than the blessings. And when you read the curses, you go, you look at it and go, oh, this was the Holocaust. Oh, this is why terrorism is. Oh, this is why the exiles. Like all of it is exactly all the sufferings, the plight of the Jews, all according to those curses that they agreed to. And so song of, so they, they go into covenant with Yahweh. Yahweh predicts to Moses they're not going to keep the covenant. Right? They're gonna they're gonna they're gonna stumble quite a few times. So sing this song so that when they are in their distress, particularly the last time they're in distress, at the end of the age, the, the next Holocaust that hits, I believe, will be the last one. Like at the end of the age, Jacob's trouble, the Antichrist, right? Suffering, unparalleled suffering. When they're in that time of trouble, and they and I have hidden my face from them covenantally. And they don't know what's going on. And they're asking, has God forsaken us? They'll remember the song prophetically. So sing it to each generation, right? It's looking forward to, and, and all the other times in Babylon, Daniel remembers, right? So um, I'm not, we're not, we're not going to go through an entire song. I'm going to let you guys uh, work through it. Um, but I want to bring one part. Uh, verse 15. Okay, so actually, so this, this, the kind of story is about, is about Yahweh taking the nation, right, making them the apple of his eye, growing them up, raising them, kind of like a baby, nursing them, and um, and then verse 15, Jeshurun, which Roger always makes a joke of, but that, it just means Israel. Israel grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Right, with all the blessings. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Right? Get this. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that, that were no gods. Okay, get that phrase, right? No gods. Right? And these are actually real, like we talked about, these are real principalities and powers that are allotted to the nations, right? Not to worship, think to, to actually govern over nations. And however the story goes, they rebelled. They, like Jude says, they kind of went out of bounds of their, of their realm. Um, and so now these principalities and demons or whatever, they're being worshipped. And Israel starts worshipping the no-gods. Not the God of Israel, the no-gods. Uh, to gods that they have not known or never known. To new gods who have come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were mindful of the rock that bore you. The rock is, is God. And you forgot... I'm sorry, you are unmindful of the rock. And you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Right? For provocation. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation. Children in whom is no faithfulness. And you're going to get that phrase all throughout the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, hiding my face. God, Psalm 13, right? Like all throughout the Psalms, like it's God hid in his face. When God deals with the covenant and the curses, it's like they're going, it's God hid in his face. We pray and it's like the heavens are bronze. We can't get through it. 
There's no prophet. There's no prophetic word. Is God hiding his face? And the answer is yes. Covenantally, he is hiding his face. It's like a parent who disciplines their kid, and the kid's yelling, and he's going, no, this is discipline, right? But particularly, it's not just a pattern of hiding his face. There's a particular time in the future, an event, that will cause God to actually turn his face from his people, okay? Um... They have made me jealous with what is no God. Right, that phrase, no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. Who are the no people? <laughs> we are the no people. <laughs> right? It's offensive, but this is this is like this is the way say, same way that the cross is offensive to the Jew, it's a stumbling block, because it's like We've been keeping the law for so many years. We've been circumcised. Like we had all these responsibilities. And these guys, these pagan guys, just come in. They don't do anything. They repent. And they get the spirit. It's offensive. Right? It's a stumbling stone. And the same way that it's just that us getting saved is a stumbling stone to the Jew. It's like the parable of the vineyard, the workers. We've been working all day in the sun. These guys are going to pay the same amount as us. And the, and the work and the owner is like, are you angry that I'm a generous guy? And it's the same way, right? And this is what's causing the discipline to the Jew. Because they're, they're getting offended. And they're not relating rightly to the mercy of God. They're not realizing all that they have is by grace. And so the, the, the same way we are to know people, right? It, and it's Jewish election that stumbles us. You know, God chose them. You take them first, right? It's, it, it, this happens with every time you have two kids, right? A, a sibling rivalry happens. Um, but we're going to know people prophetically. Um, I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. That's us, foolish nation. We think we're wise. Yep. We have uh, Plato, and we have all these philosophers. And we're a foolish nation, right? With our Gentile ideas and the way we think the world started, the way we think all things are going. We're just in the dark. We don't have the scriptures, right? But he's going to pick the no people, a foolish nation. Um, and so this is, this is, if we go back to Romans 11, Paul's saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to misunderstand prophetically what's happening when, you, when you're saying God has forsaken his people. The part of the Song of Moses is just starting to happen. God is now turning his face from the Jew. Right? And he's because you provoked him with the no gods. And he is now picking the no people. Literally you pick you, you do the you do church history and it's like random places the spirit just pours out. All these random places like what are they doing? Like they're not observing it. God is pouring it out. And Paul as a minister to the Gentiles is magnifying, magnifying lots. He's showing the Jews, look at the Gentiles getting the filled with the Spirit because, and it provokes him to anger, right? You see that all throughout the book of Acts. And the reason he's doing it is he's pressing to them, the covenant. You are covenantally being dealt with by God. And this is why he's choosing them. And it's so that you would become jealous and at a certain point you will be grafted back in, which we know is going to happen uh, according to Deuteronomy 32, the end of it, when, they, when he sees that their strength is gone, or destroyed, right? There's going to be a prophetic event in the future, still to come, 
where God's going to crush his people to such a degree that, a, a, that, that where I said this, the, the spear of supplication is poured out entire, on the entire nation. They see the one that they, peer, they pierce. And they don't go, we don't want you. They, they, they weep. They mourn. Right? And Paul's just saying, guys, this is the prophetic, this is the prophetic timeline. Like we need to be schooled and discipled in it so that we don't make these arrogant mistakes and we misinterpret what God's doing and we say, God's not disciplining them. God's done with them. We're the new Israel, right? I'm the spiritual Roger. You know, he's not, he's not just having a bad day. He's like ran out of town. I've taken this. I'm already in this house. Right? Like, it's like, this is, this is the arrogance that we're, we're dealing with. We're not in compassion. We're not loving and relating, and, and mostly relating rightly to the mercy of God. To say, guys, we only are here because of the mercy of God. And in fact, the salvation that we've been given by no uh, means of our own is their salvation. It's their Holy Spirit. It's their new covenant that we're getting the first fruits of. It's all their prophecies that we're benefiting. We're receiving the nourishing sap. And then we're going, we're the ones getting fat and sleek. And we're getting arrogant. And so the, so the, you guys get this pattern that's going to happen. That's what Paul ends with. So you, so at a certain time, the Gentiles were disobedient. And now because of their disobedience, they realized that they're wicked and depraved. And they accepted the mercy of God, the terms of the cross. And they're being brought in. And, gen, and Jews, who have become self-righteous, are now being cut off. But at a certain time, it's going to be reversed again. Right? So that no one who inherits the kingdom of God is a boaster. Right? He's, he's bringing all of us low. He's, at the end of the age, that Jacob's trouble is not just for the Jew, it's for the Gentile too. That's what Romans says in Romans 1. Tribulation and distress first in the Jew, yeah. Also, Gentile. Right? Um, so let's just end in Romans 15. Because I just want to say, this is the response that Paul, like, I can tell you the response that I think we should have. But this is what Paul is Paul is, uh, Paul is seeing all of this turmoil between Jew and Gentile. Right? In the early church, what's going on is the Gentiles are the problem. What do we do with the Gentiles? They're coming into our churches. They're eating pork. They're uncircumcised. They don't keep the law. They don't keep the Sabbath. They don't do any of that stuff. But they're but they're saved. But should we make them do that stuff? Like what? You know, when the Acts 15 happens, right? They're, 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 the apostles have to make like they have to come together and search the scriptures and make a determination that Gentiles should remain Gentiles. But obviously keep certain of these things, but they don't need to become Jews to get saved. That's not how Cornelius got the Spirit. He was a Gentile, and the Spirit came upon him. So why are we adding to that? Right? If, if Cornelius was acceptable to God as a Gentile, why are we telling him to convert? And so it's a problem in the church. We see that in the Galatians. You see right, the, the problem that's happening. Nowadays, it's the opposite way, right? The problem is the Jews. They come into our church, and we go... They're wearing yarmulkes. They're, they're like doing the law. They're, they're like, should we tell them to stop doing that? It's grace now. They don't need to do that stuff. You know what I'm saying? It's like this this hostility is existing between Jew and Gentile. Paul is trying. So this is an encouragement. Um, Romans 15. Let's start at verse five. Let's start at verse four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, 
that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you, he's talking to Gentiles, I believe here, that Christ has become a servant to the circumcised, meaning he's become a Jew, right? He's, he was incarnated the son of Abraham, the son of David. He's a servant. He's God. He didn't need to do that. But he, became, he, went, he went low. He be, took on flesh, and not just any flesh, the flesh, the son of Abraham, son of David, a circumcised Jew. He became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness or faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So think about that. How do we know that all this is going to come to pass? God himself took on that word. He became the word. He came and incarnated, son of Abraham, son of David, to say, it's confirmed. It will surely come to pass. Right? And then... To confirm the promise given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he's going to go through the Old Testament to show it's always been in God's plan for Gentiles to come in to this thing, right? Therefore, I will praise you amongst the, among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. Again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Alright, so, I mean, embrace the, the no people. Um, it says in Hosea 1, that this is that, I believe this is a, a it's kind of like a prodigal son. That Hosea, it says that the Jew... At, there's going to come a certain place where they say, we are no people. This is, these are their Jews who are God's people. They're going to come to such a place of humbling that they declare, we are the no people. And what does God respond through the prophet Hosea? In that place, where, what place? The place they confess, we are no people. They will be called sons of the living God. And isn't that how we come to become, isn't that how we become sons of the living God? We confess as Gentiles, we are no people. We have followed foolish and strange gods. We're in the dark. All our, all our like, things that we think are awesome are filthy rags before you. You are holy. We deserve a lake of fire. I remember getting saved and my friend was just like, he's such a sinner, Lord. He's such a sinner. I don't... And I was like, you know, like, I, was, I was at a place where I knew, like, I'm a sinner, yeah. Like, I'm not going to be offended by that. And so it's like, we're in that place of like, yes, we're no people, we're foolish people. And in that place, God says, no. You're sons of the living God. Upon that confession of faith and repentance. And he's going to bring the entire nation of Israel to that. And our confession as Gentiles is, an, is a witness to that. And we share a testimony. Like, you don't have to like make it more dramatic than it is. You know? I mean, but honor their covenant and election. Don't become arrogant. But when you witness and just say, I receive the Holy Spirit, God's given me joy and peace through Rakh HaKodesh. You know, like... And it happened because I was in this place. I realized I was a sinner. And they're like, this Gentile doesn't even know the law. And he's like, they, they recognize our sin and their privity. And I heard this message or I heard this song. And I believed in this Jewish Messiah. 
and I pray the prayer, and the Spirit came and confirmed that these things are true, and give, and gave me light inside to, to, that made me hope and believe that I was going to inherit eternal life. And I believe now your scriptures. I believe the Son of David is going to come and sit in that throne in Jerusalem. And the Gentiles will worship him. They will arise to worship him. We're going to bring our glory to that nation. We're going to sing together on that day. The earth will break out in, in song and rejoicing. River to the ends of the earth. Nations are going to stream up to Jerusalem. Glory is going to fill the heavens. Angels are going to ascend to descend. Animals are not going to kill each other anymore. Children are playing on the street because there's no one to harm them. Like I believe your prophets, the oracles, and I think it's awesome. You know, and... And like, let that be a witness to them. Amen. 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 So, um, I know we got we don't have a lot of time, and everybody's you know yeah, we don't leave a lot of time. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot, but just by show of hands, if you guys found this like helpful, you guys show of hands.